Well, open your Bibles with me now to Ephesians chapter 2. We are still one more week on a break from our study of the book of Romans as we have the last two Sundays been considering some passages related to the Christmas story and always each year on the, either the last Sunday of the year or the first Sunday of, of the year, depending on how it works out, I preach a message on the topic of the church. And so that's what we're going to be considering together this morning. And it seems all the more relevant, all the more important a topic at the end of 2020, where there remain many churches closed across this nation of ours, even, uh, even some in our own community. Many who are still only meeting, meeting in quotes, virtually uh, online and not in person, where there remain restrictions on gathering sizes, on where you can sit, how close you can sit to other people, on what you have to be wearing when you come into the church, what you have to hang on the doors of the church. And I suspect these kind of regulations and shutdowns are only going to increase in the coming weeks and even months under a new administration, at least it will be attempted. So now more than ever, it's important to remind ourselves what the church of Jesus Christ really is, what it's really all about, why it is that we gather together and call ourselves a church. When I was a kid, I used to love to, to get my hands on those books of Mad Libs. I don't know if they even still make those. Do you remember those books of Mad Libs where you, you create a story by filling in the blanks and you get prompts like noun or adjective or verb or color and, and then as you answer all of those and put a word in those blanks, those words are inserted into the story and to my seven-year-old mind, it was comedy gold, the highest form of comedy. I want to read a Mad Lib to you this morning written by a pastor, Kevin DeYoung, it describes the sentiment, he wrote this a number of years ago, describes the sentiment of many towards the church. The institutional church is so pejorative adjective. When I go to church, I feel completely negative emotion. The leadership is totally adjective you would use to describe Richard Nixon. <laughs> and the people are noun that starts with un- the services are adjective you might use to describe going to the dentist. The music is adjective you would use to describe the singing on Barney. The whole congregation is now choose among passive, comatose, hypocritical, or Rush Limbaugh-style Republicans. The whole thing makes me medical term. <laughs> This is pretty humorous, uh, but sadly it reflects the way many people feel about the church. Many people think this way about the church. Maybe some of you have felt this way about the church. Maybe some of you feel this way about the church right now. And the truth is, I kind of get it. The church is led by sinners, even this church. The, the elders of this church are at best sinful men, trying our hardest to be faithful, Many people use that as a reason not to go to church, but the other problem is the church is also populated by sinners. Many people want to use that as an excuse for not coming to church, but the kicker is, you're a sinner. 
You're not better than any of those people. And so I can understand why people don't like the church, but that is not how God sees the church. That is not how Jesus Christ sees his bride. It is wrong. It is, it, is a, it is a wrong understanding of the church. And in light of the negative view of the church, by so many in our world, the Bible's description of it is all the more shocking then. When we get to hear how God sees the church, on what the reality of the church is. Listen to, now in Ephesians chapter two, Paul's grand, glorious, beautiful description of what the church of the Lord Jesus Christ really is. We are going to start reading in verse 19 of Ephesians chapter two. Hear the word of the Lord. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Thank you for this treasure, this precious gift that you have given to us, your people, that through it we can know our God, we can hear your voice. Lord, your word is able to accomplish all of your sovereign purposes by the working of your spirit. And I pray to that end that you would do that this morning, that you would awaken dead hearts, that you would revive cold hearts, that you would give blinded eyes sight. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me provide just a little context for Paul's words here, since we're not working our way through the book of Ephesians like we would normally be doing with a book. We're just plucking this out of its setting. In the first 10 verses of chapter 2, many of you are very familiar with that passage of Scripture. It is one of the most powerful, moving, astounding statements on the nature of salvation in the whole Bible. Dead people walking in sin children of wrath, Paul says, being made alive with Christ because of God's love and mercy, not by our own works, but by grace alone. And not only that, but seated with Christ in heavenly places, saved to walk in the good works that he has prepared beforehand for us to do. And then in the next verses, verses 11 through 18, Paul tells us that Jesus Christ, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility between his people, between particularly Jews and Gentiles, and instead has created one new body. This new body is the church of Jesus Christ. And so now in verses 19 through 22, what we just read together, Paul's going to go on to describe the nature of this church. This church, this new body that Christ has built, what does it look like? What is it? And he tells us here that if we're part of the church of Jesus Christ, that we are the temple of the living God. It's not that we go to the temple. It's not that we're inside the temple. We are the temple of the living God. The church of Jesus Christ is the place where God meets with man. And like any temple, the church has specific parts, specific components and structures. And so this temple metaphor that Paul is using for the church, 
we see here in this passage four aspects of the temple, four aspects of the church. We see the, the temple's foundation, cornerstone, walls, and occupant. We're just going to be looking at those this morning. So first, the temple's foundation. Look with me again at verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the church, Paul says, is built on the foundation of, he says here, the apostles and prophets. The, the, the word order here is, is very important. Kent Hughes in his commentary says the word order, apostles first, prophets second, suggests that Paul means New Testament apostles and prophets. The prophets being those who, uh, to whom and through whom the word of God was proclaimed. And so it's these apostles and prophets that are the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. What do these men have in common, these apostles these prophets, it's this, that they're both proclaiming the truths of Scripture. They are both proclaiming the New Testament doctrines. So here's what this means. The foundation of the church is not a person. The foundation of the church is not an office. It's not a pastor. It's not a board. It is most certainly not the Pope in Rome. No, the foundation of the church is the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. In other words, the doctrinal truths of the New Testament scriptures. And so when you mess with that teaching, when you tamper with the doctrines of the New Testament, you're tampering with the very foundations of the church. The foundations will invariably begin to crumble, and whatever you have left, it ceases to be the church. It's built on a different foundation, a crumbling foundation. So if we deny the New Testament's teaching on the virgin birth, on the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, the foundation of the church begins to crumble. If we deny the New Testament's teaching on the exclusivity of the Lord Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation, if we deny the reality of heaven and hell, if we deny the Trinity, if we deny justification by faith alone through grace alone, if we deny the doctrine of penal substitution, if we deny the New Testament's teaching on gender and sexuality, the foundation of the church begins to crumble because we're, we're denying the foundation. And, and, and if that's the case, if that's going on in a church, it doesn't matter how nice they are. It doesn't matter how kind and accepting and affirming that church is. It doesn't matter how creative they are. It doesn't matter how progressive or large they are, if a church tampers with the clear teaching of the New Testament, its foundation will crumble, and it already has or will soon cease to be a true church. This is why doctrine is so important. Doctrine is the foundation of the church. Don't be ashamed. Don't be embarrassed by New Testament doctrine. It is the foundation of the church. But there's, there's more to the temple than just the foundation we see, secondly, the temple's cornerstone, verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The cornerstone was the most important part of the temple's foundation. It was a massive stone that bore the weight of the building. It tied all the walls and foundation together firmly. In other words, this cornerstone is what held everything else together, held everything else in place. In the early 1990s, archaeologists discovered five enormous stones that helped form the foundation of the temple 
in Jerusalem, the largest stone, measured 55 feet long, 11 feet high, and 14 feet wide, and is estimated to weigh 570 tons. They, they believe this to be the largest object that has ever been moved without the help of modern machinery. It was a massive, massive stone. And this massive cornerstone supported the whole rest of the temple. The architectural integrity of the structure was dependent on that stone. And so Paul says here that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of this temple. The, the apostles and the prophets, their teaching, it forms the rest of the foundation but Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. It all hinges on him, depends on him. He holds it all together. Practically speaking, then, Jesus Christ is the ultimate foundation of the church, and New Testament doctrine is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ himself. We often sing this. We often sing this in that beautiful old hymn that we regularly sing. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. But if a structure's foundation is unstable, the results of that are devastating. Many of you that, that live in the Topeka area, you remember the incident that happened a number of years ago right in the middle of town uh, where a large building that sat on the corner began to collapse and eventually had to be torn down. They were doing some, some renovations of some kind, if I understand correctly, and they, they wanted to knock a wall out, but they knocked the wrong wall out. It was a support wall, a foundational wall, a load-bearing wall, and the structure became so unsound and began to collapse, it had to be condemned, and they tore the thing down, and we sat with a big open lot in the middle of town for a couple years, I think, at least as I remember it. It felt like a really long time. That's what happens. That, that's what happens when there's a bad foundation in place. Bad things always follow a bad foundation. So when the foundation of the church is not Jesus Christ and his word, bad things happen. Catastrophe soon follows. It is why we must remain, church, passionately focused on being a church that is gospel-centered. Gospel-centered became something of a buzzword. I generally try to avoid using it, but it's what we must be. Gospel-focused, built on the foundation of the gospel. We want the gospel of Jesus Christ to drive everything that we are doing. The church must be built, this church must be built on the foundation of the gospel, the sinless life, the substitutionary death, the glorious resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and all of the implications that come from that as we read in the New Testament. Sadly, though, that's not the foundation that many churches are built upon. It's so easy to build on a different foundation we see churches built on many other cornerstones. The cornerstone of a charismatic pastor. The, a person with the right kind of personality can build a large church based on that alone. And we often see what happens as a result several years down the road. They build on the cornerstone of a very specific doctrinal position. In other words, they hold a higher commitment to being Anabaptists a higher commitment to being reformed, a higher commitment to being Wesleyan than to the whole counsel of the word of God. The cornerstone of spiritual gifts and experiences or, or of a political cause or of end times prophecy or of racial reconciliation and social justice or 
or the cornerstone of being cool and creative and modern with great production value in your services. We could go on and on and on listing the cornerstones that churches are being built upon, but building on any cornerstone other than the Lord Jesus Christ is deadly. Look at what happened to our former denomination. Many of you have been around long enough to remember that this was once Maple Grove Mennonite Church, not Maple Grove Church. Mennonites used to be known, I remember my dad saying when he was a boy, Mennonites were known as people of the book, meaning this book, the Bible. As one sociologist observed, the first generation taught the gospel, the second generation assumed the gospel so they could move on to other topics, the third generation lost the gospel and rejected it entirely, and now the entire denomination at least Mennonite USA, is largely apostate. If I hear of a church that is a part of that association, my assumption is there's a decent chance their pastor is unconverted. It's not true of every church, but it's true largely of the denomination. Friends, may that never be true of us. May that never be true. God forbid that that would be true of us. I want my grandkids and I want their grandkids to be gospel-centered, but that's not going to just happen. It doesn't just happen on its own. You, just, you don't just float downstream and get there. We must be intentional, even aggressive in our commitment to building only on the true foundation of Christ and his word. We have to proclaim the gospel. We have to love the gospel. We have to pray that God would help us to keep the gospel as the cornerstone of the church. So here's a good diagnostic question for us. How do we know if that's going on with us? Are we more excited about the gospel than we are our own preferences and traditions? Are we more energized by the gospel than we are the things we're tempted to grumble and complain and fight about? What is it that energizes us? What is it that excites us? It better be the gospel. D.A. Carson, a, a, a longtime Bible teacher and preacher, he said this, if I've learned anything in 35 or 40 years of teaching, it says students don't learn everything I teach them. I can tell you in just a handful of years of teaching college classes, they don't learn most of what you teach them. <laughs> and all the parents said, it's true with our kids too. Here's what he said, what they learn is what I'm excited about. The kinds of things I emphasize again and again and again and again, and that had better be the gospel. We, 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 we don't ever move on. We don't ever get beyond the gospel. You and I can never plumb the depths of the life and death and resurrection and ascension and coming return of the Lord Jesus Christ, our King, our God, our Savior. We never get past that onto a new thing. If that sounds boring to you, you don't know him. Heaven is not going to be terribly enjoyable for you. There's more to the temple than a cornerstone and foundation, though. This brings us to the third component, the temple's walls. Again, in verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. 
So Paul likens then Christians to the individual stones that make up the temple's walls. We have the foundation of of Christ and the apostles and, and prophets and their teaching in the New Testament. But the walls, the structures are built stone by stone with individual Christians being supported, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets and the cornerstone that is Christ. We see the same kind of thing coming from Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The the walls of the new covenant temple are composed of stones, each stone representing a Christian. This is a a powerful picture that we see coming from Paul here in Ephesians, from, from Peter as well, a powerful picture of the inescapably corporate nature of Christianity. There are many people in this world who say, it's just me and Jesus, and that's all I need. I don't need the church. I'm part of the invisible church. I don't need the local church. It's just me and Jesus. Friends, that does not work with the biblical imagery of what a Christian is. If Christianity was just you and Jesus, there would be no church. There would be no temple. There would be no walls. It would just be a bunch of rocks scattered out on the ground. What a beautiful image that would be from the apostles to give to us. And you're a rock lying on the ground, not touching any other rocks, lest they impose upon you their understanding of how things work. It's a very American uh, picture. Some of us are like, that sounds great. I want no one to tell me anything ever. That is not how Christ is building his church. Each stone depends upon not just the cornerstone but it also depends on the other stones around it. Without the other stones, you have no walls. Without the walls, there's no church. There's no temple. We've seen this in the book of Romans, haven't we? How how God has broken us free from, we, this little pebble, free from this concrete slab of, of all of sinful humanity who are just bound together in sin, in Adam, unable to break free. And that Christ breaks us free individually, one by one, and cements us into himself. We are now in Christ, cemented together with with his new people. Those who belong to Christ. We've seen how, how becoming a Christian automatically means we come into relationship, not just with God, but with others. God cements you in Christ. God cements you to other believers. I love what Charles Spurgeon says, this greatest preacher of the 19th century, one of the greatest preachers who's ever lived. Preaching on this passage that we're looking at this morning, he, he has an imaginary conversation with a person. He says, I know there are some who will say, well, I have given myself to the Lord, but I do not intend to give myself to any church. Now, why not? Well, because I can be a Christian without it. Are you quite clear about that? You can be as good a Christian by disobedience to your Lord's commands as by being obedient? There's a brick. What's it made for? To help build a house. It is of no use for that brick to tell you that it is just as good of a brick while it is kicking about on the ground as it would be in the house. It's a good-for-nothing brick. So, you Rolling Stone Christians, I do not believe that you are answering your purpose. You're living contrary to the life with which Christ would have you live. 
and you are much to blame for the injury that you do, end quote. You can't even be mad at him about that because he's been dead for like 200 years. You, you weren't designed to live the Christian life on your own. When God saved you, he saved you to be a brick in the temple of the living God, to be a functioning part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And how does that work itself out? Not in some invisible, disconnected church. No, it's in the local church, in the visible local church. This implies that you need to be engaged meaningfully. Not just attending services faithfully, although that's essential. How could we ever be engaged meaningfully if we're not attending faithfully? But serving, walking in relationship with the saints. To, to make this really practical and specific as I can, if you are not a member of a local church, you are a brick that is just laying off to the side of the temple. You are not fulfilling the purposes that God created you for. You're just existing. So what do we do about that? The answer is really simple. You join a church. You join a faithful church built on the foundation of Christ and the apostles. Join a church for your own good. Join a church for the good of others. The church needs you. You, you were created, actually, to, to fill a hole in the church. Join a church for the glory of God. Join a church that the temple may be built up. This is an inescapable application of the words that we see here from Paul of the nature of the church. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. I think the old saying is lone rangers are dead rangers. Finally then, the temple's occupant. Look at verse 21. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Consider what an amazing statement this is. The church of Jesus Christ is indwelled by the very presence of God. Now in one sense, the Bible is the history of God dwelling among his people. And, and of course, we believe that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time. And so we might even hear a statement like this, and it's an indictment of us, by the way, in our cold hearts. We hear a statement about being built together to be a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, and we go, well, God's everywhere all the time, so not really that impressive. I get that on my own. Friends, if that's your response, it is an indictment. It is a finger pointing in your face. Of course we believe that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere all the time, but he manifests his presence in a particular way in certain places throughout redemptive history. And wouldn't you love to know what those places are? Do you ever read these accounts, especially in the Old Testament or, and even in the New Testament where God manifests his presence in a particular way and you kind of get goosebumps when you're reading it and you go, oh, to have been there. Oh, to have seen that. God manifests his presence as he led his people out of Egypt with a massive pillar of fire by night and a giant cloud during the day. Then God had Moses build a tabernacle, build this giant 
tent uh, to house his presence in the wilderness. And the tabernacle was placed right in the very center of God's people because God wanted to dwell in the midst of his people. And they had this tangible evidence of, of God's presence with them right in the center of their camp, of his love for them, of his care for them, of, his, of the fact that he was with them. Then Solomon built the stone temple in Jerusalem and an awesome display of the power of God. God's presence descended from heaven and came and, and filled the temple. Then in the time of Ezekiel, we see the same thing happen nearly in reverse, even traveling the same path as God's presence left the temple because of Israel's continued and unrepentant sin. But then through the prophets, God promised to fill the temple once again, but this time it had nothing to do with a physical temple in Jerusalem. When Jesus came several hundred years later, he came and proclaimed that he was the temple. John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus was the temple, the very place where God would meet with man. In fact, Jesus made it possible for God to meet with man. He was God in the flesh. And after the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus ascended to the Father. So he is no longer physically present with us in the flesh as he was during his incarnation. But he manifests his presence in his church by the power of the Holy Spirit. When the church gathers, like we are doing this morning, to celebrate the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ manifests his presence in the new temple by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is one of the reasons why we keep our kids in during the service. We believe something supernatural is happening here, even if most of my words fly over their head and they think I'm boring and weird looking. We believe that Jesus Christ manifests, has promised to manifest his presence among us by his spirit. We believe it. We take him at his word. The Old Testament tabernacle and temple were always meant to point us to something far, far greater than themselves. They pointed us to the church of Jesus Christ, to the spiritual temple where God's very presence dwells. Now, among other things... Just one little freebie practical note. Here's what that means. It means we shouldn't get distracted by the Bible teachers who are fixated on a rebuilding of a temple in Jerusalem. That's a very popular strain of theology that is fixated on that, and it misses the point entirely. It is going backwards, not forwards. By the way, were the temple to be rebuilt in such a way that sacrifices would resume, it would be entirely blasphemous and a rejection of the finished work of Christ. Christians should not be rooting for that. Okay, good. Thank you for the one amen. God's plan to dwell with his people was always meant to be fulfilled in the church of Jesus Christ, the true temple of the living God. The church of Jesus Christ, get this here, friends, it is the only place where God promises to manifest his presence in that special way. While it's true that God does manifest his presence in a special way in all kinds of different locations, while it's true that God indwells individuals, something unique, something supernatural happens when the saints gather together corporately. 
God manifesting his presence. How does God manifest his presence the way that we saw with the temple, where there's a building we can look at, where we saw with the tabernacle, where there's a giant tent right in the middle of the camp? Well, it's through the means of grace that he has given us. It's through the the ordinances he has commanded us in the church. Jesus Christ has told the church what it ought to do when it gathers corporately. He manifests his presence through the preached word. He manifests his presence through the singing. He manifests his presence through our prayers and fellowship and through the Lord's Supper. Friends, we should put a major emphasis on corporate worship. One of the things that I prayed for during this whole time of COVID where churches weren't meeting for a time, where some churches still aren't meeting and in some states are, there are mandates trying to bar churches from meeting. I mentioned at our, good, our Christmas Eve service a, a pastor in, uh, in Canada who was just served with legal notice that uh, he will have $100,000 in fines for having had a church service and up to a year in prison, still awaiting what will happen there. One of my prayers was that it would cause us to value corporate worship again. We wouldn't be so cavalier about it. Oh, I'll go or I won't. Had a long night last night. Have a big lunch today. Got an opportunity to, to do this or do that, and that opportunity seems to come up like a lot. My prayer has been that we would value corporate worship, coming together on the Lord's Day with the saints. When we do that, here's what we are promised. We are coming into the presence of Almighty God. How could we take that lightly? The Church of Jesus Christ is not a social club. It is not a place to come and get a pep talk. It is not a place to come out and hang with our friends, although what a joy it is to come into church and just... I get to stand up here and look at all your faces. You all get that. And I just get to think as I'm preaching how I love these people. Oh, it's a real gift. Well, that's not what the church is all about. It's certainly not a place to come and demand that all of our preferences are met. I want us to do things this way and sing these kind of songs and do this kind of thing and not do this other thing here. No, no, no. The church of Jesus Christ is the temple of the living God. It is the one place on earth where God promises to manifest his very presence. So there we have it. You read your Bible, you get goosebumps when you see the manifest presence of God. There is one place on earth that he has promised to do it. It's his church. It's when his people gather together corporately to worship him. Christians, if that's true, if that's true, and it is, shouldn't we build our lives around the church? Shouldn't we build everything around that? Shouldn't that be the thing that everything else has to make accommodation for in our lives? Now, you might be going, yeah, you're a pastor. Of course you do that. It's your job. Let me tell you, it hasn't been that many years that it's been my job. But for our entire married life, which has been 25 years as of a couple days ago, that's how we've lived our lives. From 19-year-old married kids, that's how we've lived. It has not been my income for very long. So I'm not a hypocrite up here telling you we ought to do this. We ought to do it. I've given my whole life to it. I mean it that much because I see it here in God's word. How could we do anything else? What could possibly matter more than that? 
What could possibly matter more than the same Jesus Christ who reached into that pit, who took us out of that jail cell, who broke us free from that sinful bondage to sin and death and all the rest of wicked humanity and has brought us into himself and placed us in him, hidden us in him, given to us his righteousness, who holds us in his hand and says, no one can take you out, who's interceding on our behalf right now, who has promised to return for us, that we would dwell with him forever. And then he has gifted us and and created us to fit perfectly into his church to bring glory to him that not only would, would, would the church grow and God be honored, but we would be most fulfilled in, in doing that which we've created to be. How could we think there's anything else that matters more than that? That's more important than that. And the answer is there isn't. There's nothing more important about you than the fact that you belong to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That you are a stone in the new temple. That, friends, is the most significant thing about you. And if you think there is something about you that is more significant, you have misjudged yourself. Let me conclude by quoting Charles Spurgeon one more time. Give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect, and I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church until I had found one that was perfect, I would never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I would have ruined it. For it would not have been a perfect church after I became a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. All who have first given themselves to the Lord should, as speedily as possible, also give themselves to the Lord's people. How else is there to be a church on earth? If it is right for anyone to refrain from membership in the church, then it is right for everyone, and the testimony of God would be lost to the world. Spurgeon's right on all counts there. What a gift from God the church is. What a glorious thing. In these days where we hear the world trashing the church, pointing out the hypocrisy that we have seen in many churches and many Christians, we remind ourselves that we too are sinners and hypocrites who have been saved by the grace of God and not just saved, but made members of the church of Jesus Christ, given an opportunity to walk that out in this life with other brothers and sisters in the faith. What a gift. Imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your gospel. Thank you for your saving grace, Lord, that, that tells us that we sinners have a way to be reconciled to a holy God who cannot tolerate sin, whose, whose righteousness demands that sin be dealt with and punished. Thank you for Christ who took our place, fulfilling the law in all the ways where we have failed, who gave his life as a ransom for many on the cross where for all of his people for all time our unrighteousness, our guilt was dealt with in him. That his righteousness was given to us as our own righteousness, that we can stand clean before a holy God, confident knowing that we are sons and daughters who he will never turn away. Lord, thank you for this saving gospel. Thank you for your grace to us. Would you cause in each one of us, Lord, to us to see our lives rightly? 
Lord, the way that it's so easy for us to try and build on other foundations, the way it's so easy for us to be distracted with things that just don't matter, the way it's easy to take your church lightly and to take you lightly, I pray, Lord, that you would bring repentance to us, conviction and repentance by your Holy Spirit. Cause us, Lord, to live for you, for your glory. Lord, thank you for this gift that life is. Thank you for the gift of salvation and the gift of your church. We pray, Lord, that you would make us faithful by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.